You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hey, this is the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. If you like what we do, please share the podcast, give it a good rating in your podcast app, tell people what we're doing at Nori and help us reverse climate change. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe and Paul Gamble. We are in the financial district of New York. We are in a WeWork, which is cool. Uh, there's always there's fruit in the water. That is a thing that happens that I need to do at home. They don't skimp on the fruit here. No, no. There's a, <laughs> there's, there's, there's there's pineapple a quite a lot. in there. There's pineapple, and in they there. have fresh fruit each day. Yeah, that is a nice perk. I like these co-working <laughs> they spaces. They don't reuse yeah. the fruit every single day. Yep, yeah, that's can, important. Can you personally guarantee that with your reputation? <laughs> they might recycle it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. But where does the fruit go? I really hope that it is part of some kind of circular economy waste stream where it might be sequestering the carbon somewhere, somehow. I'm worried it doesn't. Probably does what New York does with all of its trash, which is ship it to New Jersey because there's no space here. But without any further ado, let's let's introduce our guest. Sitting across from us, we have Risalat Khan. Um, he's from Bangladesh. He is a activist in the climate space and much more. I had the pleasure of meeting him. It was over a year ago. We're actually one of the, I think, 10 or 12 companies which was invited to participate in the Climate Brain Trust, NYC. This was the first time such an event had occurred, and it went astoundingly well. Actually, well, doesn't matter to you, the listener, because you're listening to this way after we did the event, but it was only two days ago that Nori hosted an event with Propagate Ventures, who is another Climate NYC Brain Trust member. And we stayed in touch. I noticed that Risala was doing a lot of really cool stuff, and I'm sure that he has a story that we want to hear about. So without any further ado, Risala, we like to start with everyone's story and basically how they got to where they are and which is right now here sitting on the Reversing Climate Change podcast. So tell us. Yeah, thanks, Christoph. I uh, appreciate being here. Uh, I think stories are really important, so I love that you start with that. My story, uh, I guess, yeah, I was born in Dhaka City, which is a huge city in Bangladesh. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the world, is it actually. Dhaka, the capital? Yes, yeah, it okay. is the capital. And it's actually bigger than New York. That's not a very widely known Ooh, fact in wow. terms of population. So yeah, so I grew up there. And I think when I tell my story, one of the most important elements for me has been the kind of upbringing I grew up with uh, and the values that my parents instilled in me. I think my father particularly was a very good teacher, is a very good teacher, and uh, and he instilled a lot of values of caring about people, caring about society, and he's also an environmental activist. Uh, he was one of the founders of one of the biggest uh, NGOs uh, that works on environment in Bangladesh. So uh, I grew up kind of watching him do various demonstrations and other uh, events with civil society. So, so it was kind of uh, the norm for me growing up. And as I kind of went through my education, uh, I was always socially minded. But in college, I, I decided to major in environmental studies and uh, geology, which gave me a really good perspective of how uh, life on Earth evolved. Uh, you know, what what is this Earth? What is this place that we live in? And also the real urgency of climate change. That's That was the first time I really understood and studied the science and understood it. Geology um, is not known for making people think of urgency. Yeah, right. it's not. Yeah, because of yeah, I think I think there's a interesting duality there, uh, having that perspective about deep time, but simultaneously uh, knowing how 
fast changes can happen in in the climate system and uh, and there is something about that duality that that I think captured me so and and that set me on a path towards working on uh, climate issues like pretty soon after college I found myself uh, with the organization I'm working with right now Avaz uh, which is a global civic movement that does a lot of work on climate um, I'm also involved with other uh, different volunteer initiatives like the NYC Climate Brain Trust that you referenced, uh, which is part of the Global Shapers community, uh, an initiative of the World Economic Forum. So yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I, I got that upbringing like that put me towards this path. And then uh, I've kind of continued because I've learned about uh, how important this issue is to all of us. You basically drank the Kool-Aid from a very young age. You know, when I think about the country Bangladesh, I haven't visited yet. I hope to visit before it goes underwater or reverse the impact so that it doesn't end up going underwater. But I think that's something that scares me a lot and is very pronounced because it is a very flat country, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's Bangladesh is in many ways the poster child of, of climate change. You most of the viewers who have you know listened to or uh, seen climate related articles and so on would probably remember the sentence bangladesh is the most vulnerable country to climate change and and that's for a reason it is very flat you know right now there's a big debate going on about uh, with the ipcc report that just came out uh, the scientists report on 1.5 degrees celsius the 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees celsius target on climate change really matters for a country like bangladesh because that means tens of millions of more people potentially being pushed out of their land and having to migrate to the city and instability and lack of resources and all of that stuff. So uh, so it's a, it's a very pressing uh, concern in, in Bangladesh for sure. And how do people talk about it there? Is it sort of, do people feel like this is a more urgent issue or is it kind of cognitive dissonance where no, everything's fine and we're going to go on with our everyday life? It it is. Uh, if you if you actually see you know what people in Bangladesh think, like most people know about climate change, uh, it's it's not like you know here in the states where people don't often see it as a you know urgent concern. Um, people, especially those who live in coastal areas, of which there are millions and tens of millions of people, for them it's a it's a fact of life. And Bangladesh has been doing. Uh, climate-based uh, adaptation, like community-based adaptation work for decades. Um, and there's actually a lot of knowledge that has been developed over time because we have had to deal with these issues, everything from disaster reduction to um, how to do agriculture when you have salinity intrusion and uh, you name it. So one of one of my uh, favorite facts is actually um, after Hurricane Katrina happened here in the States, uh, Bangladesh actually sent a team over to kind of help FEMA with the cleanup efforts because, you know, it, things were bad. And we had had a lot of experience kind of dealing with hurricanes and cyclones um, and, and the aftermath of that. So so we were able to share that knowledge even with an advanced country like the U.S. Wow. Being in a position like that where maybe you don't have you're not on the U.N. Uh, Security Council. What is that? Yeah, you and Security Council, you you don't necessarily have the biggest voice in the world to to talk. I'm sure you can get some lobbying done, but in that position, it seems like research into adaptation and preparedness is is maybe the thing that many people must be resigned to do, which is bad. We'd like to reverse it so it isn't necessary, but it sounds like people are taking steps there to be ready in case they need to. Yeah, I mean, it's you have to, right? Like when the reason uh, Dhaka, for example, is one of the fastest growing cities is because 
many of the people, as much as maybe by some estimates, half a million people per year have to move in because of climate-related displacement. Oh. So um, that's that's just kind of like the fact of life, and you have to prepare for that. You have to kind of uh, you know uh, enable your people to to be able to deal with these impacts. So so it's not uh, it's not neither or. What's driving that displacement? Is it changing ability to, for agriculture or something else? Yeah, many times it could be uh, things like salinity intrusion that makes it impossible to grow like staple crops. So so yeah, so people are uh, reserved to, you know, if, if their homes are uh, either swept away by floods or cyclones, that's another big cause. Um, so, so there can be a multitude of effects. So here you are and you want to do something, you feel called to do something, and you're doing something. It's not about wanting to do something. And you see the opportunity to campaign around issues to sort of push the needle to create change. So what are some of those issues? And how do you go about creating change? Yeah, so that's a big question. I I feel like as a campaigner, I feel really um, empowered to look at problems like climate change and other problems as well, and and be able to engage in that rather than being a spectator. I think one of, you know, probably the most memorable uh, experience or set of experiences in my life have to do uh, with when I was uh, part of the campaigning around the Paris Agreement um, in 2015. So I was with Avaz then and uh, and we globally spearheaded the People's Climate March and the Global Climate Marches along with many other organizations. And we were able to, you know, get 1.5 million people on the streets uh, over 2014 and 2015 uh, in over 2,000 cities um, and also build a lot of public momentum, work with negotiators, um, do advocacy and, uh, you know, support the champions to really get an ambitious long-term goal in Paris of 100% clean energy. So, you know, I was I was there in Paris when the actual Paris Agreement was gaveled. I was in the room and that was definitely one of the most inspiring moments of my life. So um, I think, you know, there are many ways to make change and, and every situation calls for, you know, different set of tools and tactics and skills and resources. But I think what's important is is the choice of uh, of hoping and and also engaging, uh, because you know without that fundamental choice of engagement, you are not going to change anything. So I think I think for each of us, especially at this time when we see a lot of challenges facing us, it's very easy to um, you know give up or think that it's too big and we can't you know help do anything. But rather than doing that, I think the fundamental choice is to engage and and see what comes. With activism, this is in some ways quite a facile and stupid question, but I've I've long wanted to ask it because if if I was a politician and I was in power and a bunch of people marched by, I'd be like, okay, cool, like like who cares? So what what makes it effective? Because being cynical, there's there's a line I think from it's either Kierkegaard or Dostoevsky said something like. Prayer doesn't exist to change the mind of God, but to change the person praying. And so I wonder sometimes if it's about more the people going there and having experience and them being changed by it more than something external, which is possibly a good thing. But how do you ensure when you're doing protests, it doesn't just make people feel good, but it's actually getting results. I've, I've never understood why some work and some seemingly there's always protests, but those issues never happen in the way that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's look at climate, right? So what the People's Climate March in 2014 did was that 
showed politicians across the world that you know people were actually marching on the streets for climate right it happened right before the new york city climate summit uh where the people's climate march you know drew out 400,000 people and you know leader after leader heads of state kind of referenced the people that were marching on the streets so politicians are essentially at least in democracies they are beholden to people they're beholden to their constituencies and when it's they like, see it's like it's it's like showing you're going to vote ahead of time or something like that yeah um you know, people people marching, people calling, people sending messages, people signing petitions. These are things that show politicians that, oh, there's actually, you know, our constituents actually care about this, like enough mm-hmm. to do whatever action. Um and, and that we, we see that that gets results. So so yeah, I think I think like power comes from people. Like I think people are a fundamental force in the world. And if people actually come together in whatever cause, I think nothing is impossible. I agree. I also think that one of the signals that activism provides is to say, as you said, you know, there's there's a pent up demand. This people want this. They say we must do this, and it doesn't necessarily say it's a solution to. It's not. You don't end by just marching in the street, but it does signal that there's this. We need more because I wouldn't be marching in the street if we're on track to fixing climate change, and so. I think it's um, it's definitely going in the right direction. One I noticed a couple months ago, there were some Facebook pictures that you were sharing of you up in the Arctic, and I've never been to the Arctic. I want to go there before it all melts. But what was that like? Yeah, um, I I had this really incredible opportunity, uh, which I'm really grateful for. It's with a new initiative called Future Talks, uh, which essentially is uh, trying to understand like what are the biggest questions that we face right now when we look to the future and and it's trying to answer that start to start to kind of um, build some progress towards that by bringing together a diverse set of people uh, in, a, in a conversation around discussing those questions and uh, they also have uh, uh, an important focus on climate on on youth on the future uh, so the the team being from Norway wanted to pick a spot like the Arctic where they brought together 100 people from around the world uh, from all ages, from different fields, from different countries. I in in Norway? Were, yeah. yeah. Oh. So so we flew to uh, Oslo and then from Svalbard, we uh, took a ship where we were out in the Arctic for about uh, three to four days. And, you know, when you're right now, you are always like you see everyone on their cell phones, on their devices. So when you're at a place where there's, you know, you don't have the option of doing that, that unlocks a different kind of connection. Uh, So that was also one of their intentions, which definitely happened. And yeah, actually, it was quite emotional for me, because as we went, you know, we went beyond 80 degrees north. And it was we saw very little ice like there was you know at one point we were sailing through open seas that were actually you know we were being told that that's still ice on maps and even if we came like a few years ago it would be like unreachable through over like five kilometers of just ice that you couldn't penetrate so you see the the melting happening like directly uh, and and you know just standing on the permafrost like I could I could kind of like almost feel it. You feel the crunch um, of it. Yeah, um, it's getting soggy in it. and uh, it, it was quite emotional, especially kind of relating that to again sea level rise and how, what that means for so many people in Bangladesh and so many other coastal areas. Um, and and it was a powerfully connecting moment to to the changing climate as well. Sounds like it. A- another powerful moment 
I was watching a video where you were sitting on a stage with Al Gore um, and a I've few heard of him, yeah. other, other climate leaders. And I mean, it, awesome first. I, I wonder what was that like? But also, as you brought up, you know, it, it requires a diverse collective of people to really create solutions. And here we are, the four of us on our mics, we're all millennials and we sort of see the agency in our hands and have to take the bull by the horns, literally, because the Wall Street bull is like right outside um, it is, <laughs> but but what what was what was that like, and what was the message that you delivered to some more senior climate leaders? Yeah, that was another uh, incredible opportunity that I was very fortunate to have. Um, Al Gore, obviously, like many of us, uh, has been a hero for me. Like watching Inconvenient Truth way back, um, I don't know when it came out, but as a kid. So yeah, I think it was really powerful for sure, and I. As you said, there were you know several senior leaders present there, and uh, I saw my I saw it as an opportunity to be more provocative because I think you know young people can bring that to the discussion, be a bit more disruptive, be uh, you know pushing the boundaries a little bit. So I I basically said that you know throughout my lifetime, I'm 28 now, 30 years of decisions have been made that have put us in this place where we are kind of in a cliff. Uh, we have to re- reduce emissions extremely rapidly, and there's you know, there's a risk that it's it would be very hard to do without disrupting the global economy as well, um, even though maybe it's possible. So so I, I essentially said that the last 30 years, global decision makers have in many ways like failed us in this climate challenge. And, you know, we are now in a moment where by 2020 in the next, two, well, this was last year. So in the next three years, like by 2020, we have to kind of bend the curve of carbon emissions, which is a tough job. But I think uh, that's the kind of urgent situation we're in right now. And what was really uh, amazing and surprising to me was that um, Governor Jay Inslee of uh, Washington State was there, and he really picked up that uh, kind of challenge I throw, like you know, uh, that I shared on the table. Um, and he and he really picked up on that challenge, and he kind of uh, made a commitment uh, himself to to take that forward and and try to do all he can to inspire his fellow decision makers to uh, make progress on that. So, Yeah, that, that's great. And also for Nori, you know, we hope to build something that will enable the mayors and politicians and governors and really anyone who makes a commitment without the slightest clue of how to get there. Which is quite common. Which is quite common. And oftentimes, actually, if you track back and look at all the proclamations that mayors have had and then say, well, I'm going to now hold you accountable, none of them have ever met it. And so we want to say, hey, you know, you said you were going to be carbon neutral by X. And the only way to do that is to say, well, you need to have taken the carbon back out of the atmosphere that you previously emitted. I wanted you, you were saying something earlier about generations. And I wanted to say a quote that actually I heard yesterday from a presentation that Paul Hawken gave. There's a climate establishment. And then so he said, the good thing about the establishment is that they carry the ball. The bad thing about them is that they breathe the gas. And so it's one of those, we see this sort of rather connected climate community, maybe even a climate cartel that is has a like, almost myopic view of how climate change must happen. And then there's activity happening around on the fringes that's happening from groups that maybe think differently or maybe are millennials and somehow influence the climate establishment. And so I just commend you for taking that brave role. But I also want to ask you, how do you see additional force? Because it's going to take force that goes way beyond the climate establishment. How do you see that additional force influencing um, and really creating the change that we need to see? 
I think right now, like I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna be honest. I'm pretty worried. Like I, I'm a very hopeful person, but I also look at the science and I look at the the political currents that we have seen over the last couple of years, and and it is a worrying situation with, you know, with President Trump saying, you know, like he'll pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The leading far right candidate in Brazil, Bolsonaro, right now is um, echoing similar words. So, so it is it is a worrying trend, um, and I think ultimately we ultimately like I'm a believer in the power of people, as I mentioned before, and I think you know there are people all around the world who really care about this issue and who are much more responsible than the politicians um, in realizing the urgency that we face. Um, so, I think it will, in many ways come down to social movements to create the political conditions where acting on climate is not, uh, you know, not something you can uh, waver on um, that essentially holds uh, leaders accountable no matter what political stripe they come from. Um, and I think uh, in the next few years, I I very much uh, hope and I'm, and I'm hopeful we will see this, that people kind of rising, doing more civil disobedience kind of actions. These are happening in communities around the world already in uh, blocking fossil fuel projects. Uh, it, just this month in Germany, 50,000 people marched in Hamburg Forest, um, like hours away from any big city, and and basically, you know, put a stop to the expansion of the largest coal mine in Europe. Um, so, so that was an amazing victory and a display of people power. So, um, I think more of those need to happen, and 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 I'm hopeful they will happen, and and that we can hold our political leaders accountable. It's a tough thing to do. I think one of the ways Nori intersects with some of this is that if you can make it easier for some of these states that are dependent on their revenues coming from coal or oil is if we can find a way where uh, carbon removal can have a place there that is monetized, maybe at some point they might be able to make up enough where in, the incentives wouldn't be all there to preserve this way of doing things, which is a concentrated benefit, but the cost is diffused through all the entire world. But that's, that's kind of how we try to be persuasive in that way. Because um, in some of those places that are dependent on those jobs, it seems quite hard to get them to vote against their own paycheck. Or yeah, if you're, you're a coal miner, you're a roughneck in the oil fields. It's a hard sell. Yeah, absolutely, it's hard. I do want to put out one caution though. Like I think there there has been this movement from people who don't want the economy to change away from fossil fuels to to kind of point towards carbon review, removal as as the solution that will save us all. And I just want to caution that I think we need to take a very kind of wise line where, yes, we need to be investing in solutions like Nori, and I love what you guys are doing, uh, but at the same time, not be also distracted by that or, you know. Like, don't bet everything on this thing showing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's not really, uh, you know, at scale proven in the way that actually it can get us out of this mess. So we need to be transitioning as fast as possible away from fossil fuels simultaneously solutions like nari will will help in in making that transition smoother and and you know basically keeping the carbon lower in the in the atmosphere yeah we get really excited about all the the clean energy costs coming down so much and that that's no longer a political issue in many places either it's just better business to, to buy solar to buy wind and uh but yeah, we can't just, uh, I don't think it would be responsible to do nothing and wait for carbon removal to show up like Batman at the last second and fix everything. 
Yeah, and that's that's a great opportunity for emerging economies like Bangladesh. Uh, if you look at many African countries, for example, like there's so many countries that don't have any landline infrastructure and have moved directly to mobile phones. Um, so, so the same applies to uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. So right now, we don't need to be investing in the like technology of the past. We can go directly to solar and renewable and have have it be, actually compete on cost and beat out other uh, fossil fuel like, just energy. Leap, leapfrog right to it. Yeah. 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 That's quite exciting. I like would like to see that. I'm optimistic. I mean, just to comment on some of the things you were saying about carbon removal. No, of course, it's not a silver bullet. And absolutely, it's a, it's a yes and, right? We need all of it. And I also think one of the values that Nori provides is as the token is issued and has a freely floating price and it becomes a reference price. Essentially, we like to draw the metaphor. It's like putting, if you call CO2 garbage, um, Nori is like the garbage collector who shows up with the bill and is like, well, do you want to pay this bill? Well, no, I don't want to pay it. Well, good. Then don't put the garbage out into the street and put clean energy or reduce the garbage as much as you can. So it becomes that motivation and it kind of all fits together. Mm -hmm. And Coming from the carbon removal space, I think maybe I feel a little bit stepped on at times because... I could feel that energy just, just bursting off of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I <laughs> just want to pick You're some okay. bones. No, it's okay. I get over it. Bit. You know, I have a very good shrink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... I actually don't. <laughs> uh, you should. I don't know. I, I, why, would I, why would I lie on my, my, our podcast? But anyway, what, I guess what I was trying to say was... You know, it can all fit together, but traditionally, the, a lot of the narrative in the climate space has been around mitigation, and it says mitigation first, and then, we'll, oh, we'll think about this carbon removal thing later. But finally, in the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, it actually had said, no, this we cannot get there unless we remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And I actually think that the moral hazard argument, which has been made against carbon removal, that says, well, if you can remove the carbon, then you're just going to continue burning fossil fuels until the end of time, is actually one that's incorrect. It's not saying we're here to enable the burning of fossil fuels until the end of time. We're here to remove the 1 trillion plus tons of CO2 in order to say it's not even about living in a 1.5 degree Celsius warming world. It's saying, let's get back to zero. Let's restore the climate to a place where we can live healthily and happily and for many, many generations to come. If we could, that would be amazing. And uh, But the fact is we're not there yet, right? So, So I think how I would see the moral hazard argument is that we need to do work so that we don't get to a moral hazard situation, right? I think it's a it's it's not like all right there's a moral hazard or there is not it's it's more like how do we make sure that it's not a moral hazard i think i would frame it that way are you content with that christoph have you, have you healed? i'm content with that I th <laughs> yeah i think i think that's that's fair but that's not how the how the world sees it yet which is part of the reason why we do this podcast to put ideas in people's heads who want to maybe think about framing a little bit differently and it truly is yes and it's we need everything yeah and there there are two ways to stop climate change it's very simple pull the CO2 back out, which we've already put there, and don't put it there in the first place. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so simple. So let's just go ahead and do it, right, Ross? Yeah, I think having uh, options going, it's, our, man, this is like every third podcast, someone says more shots on goal. We're just happy that, that there are, the more projects there are trying to solve this, the better in different approaches. And we don't always see things the same as everyone else, but that's part of, if, if we did, we'd be, all be pretty bored, I think, anyways. True. Yeah, I don't know how 
I'm sure there are times when you walk out of a, a meeting or whatever and you're like, that was the most echo chambery thing I've ever heard. Like, was there, was there much, much intellectual, are we all just phoning it in at this point? And I find whenever I'm in a, a meeting like that or in a room like that, I think I start to get pretty bored. Well, maybe that's another good direction to go. Like from the like advocacy and activism side, what, what do you think needs to be improved or, or changed about the way that people approach this? I think um, this is not just limited to activism and advocacy, but I think more broadly, we need to realize that, you know, we are an extremely interconnected planet that is facing extremely interconnected global challenges. And climate, you know, being a huge challenge that it is, is not the only challenge we face, right? Right now, you know, we have a biodiversity crisis that we need to meet, like, you know, extinction levels that are so far beyond the natural background levels. And that doesn't even get as much uh, political capital as climate does. Uh, and in many ways, the knowledge of how we deal with it is uh, is less uh, strong because it hasn't had the investment um, that climate has. Simultaneously, there are so many other global challenges that are not in the environmental realm as well. So I think not just in the activism and advocacy space, but more broadly across sectors, across the private sector, across government, across the nonprofit and um, advocacy sector as well. I think we need to reach that kind of collective um, understanding that we all have a part to play in the ecosystem and we all need to work together to um, really put our planet, our uh, society, our people, you know, first. Uh, and, and Is that plausible? I think so. I think it's, you know, I think we have a long way to go to do that. But I think, I I honestly, you know, I, this is not me just being uh, provocative, but I actually think that it might be a, a matter of survival. We we're dealing with extremely powerful forces and we need to get to that place where we can manage them effectively. Have you thought at all about how climate activism and environmental sentiment generally can reach people that are right of center have you have you thought about how how one might engage people over there we, we think about that a lot and find it quite quite interesting um i think we've had some degree of success in those that we know and we approach it in are the way that we frame things tend to be intrigued in a way where conventional rhetoric from the environmental side hasn't worked as effectively mm-hmm yeah, I think I think there are effective ways. Uh, like for example, right now there's a bipartisan initiative that's um, that's making its way through the U.S. political system about a revenue neutral carbon tax, right? Um, that that returns the yeah. fee and dividend. Yeah, yeah, that returns the money to people that's raised, which is a you know kind of conservative philosophy. Of, yeah, Naomi uh, Klein wouldn't like it. <laughs> But but it has bipartisan support, right? And in a, in a time that is so politically divided in in the U.S., that is saying something when you have something that has bipartisan support. Similarly, uh, I, I recently watched a documentary I can't quite remember the name of, but it was about uh, essentially uh, the the like ex-military leaders and generals kind of talking about the security dimensions of climate and how is it like the anatomy of something? Or someone sent me a documentary recently. Is it on Amazon Prime? I'm not sure. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't I'll, remember. We'll exactly. put it in the show notes and we'll figure it out. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah, I really liked it. Uh, it's, you know, it's obviously it's a security issue because, you know, it's it's a matter of resources. It's a matter of infrastructure security and all of that stuff. So 
that kind of uh, security dimensions often really strike to uh, like you know effectively with a lot of people who are right of center um so so i think i think there are effective ways to communicate climate and uh, it is such a big issue right like you can connect to it from so many different angles yeah there's a lot but, there yeah so but some like it's it's so politicized in the us but it's not necessarily so politicized in other countries right so so there has been a history of of politicizing the issue um and and then people get uh stuck in their own kind of uh filter bubbles and uh and follow uh certain ideologues maybe that that make this a divisive issue but it's not right it doesn't have to be and it's not in many other countries um like in bangladesh it's not really a divisive issue uh like whatever political stripe you come from like you can still act on climate even though there are still questionable energy choices that are made but you know like the facts of climate change and the need to adapt like those those are incontrovertible sure and yeah, i've seen some uh military reports um, from secondary sources journalists writing about them but i can imagine if if bangladesh were to go underwater and you had uh millions millions of people who were hungry and angry and coming into countries who may not be ready to absorb waves of people like that that could i can imagine conservatives not liking that very much that sounds like a a tense situation where there could be intergroup struggles people are that's clashing. not good for anyone can, yeah, at least of all people of bangladesh can yeah, i rephrase what you're what you're saying that fear of climate refugees is going to drive people who are right of center to care about climate change Yeah, that's that's probably what I'm trying to say. And you can say that's not a not a not the most humanitarian or not the most just reason to care about it, but I could see that getting through to some people, like even some of the more hard-headed ones you don't think even have a chance to. And that might not be I don't know, it might not be the mo- the most important reason to care about climate change. It's a little sad to think about. Yeah, that that's like that's It's, the finally the well, thing that got you one of the people who need your I, help are are on your doorstep. I, I, I don't I don't know, but that doesn't make me sad to think about it. I mean, you were, were speaking about it sort of callously, but the the thing I wasn't trying to be. I was putting myself in there. Well, it's just coming from through the Ross lens. Oh. So the <laughs> and I feel bad. I'm going to sound like an idiot for that one. No, no, no. I'm about to agree with you. So the the thing that has scared me the most as I started to learn more about climate change this was over three years ago and started doing more research into it. The thing that scared me was it's not necessarily the sea level rise itself it's not necessarily the species loss itself it's the the changing rain patterns the inability to grow food where people need it it's the recognition that the uh refugee crisis that's happening in europe right now really was influenced significantly by climate change and then also the right-wing backlash against refugees and yes like all also. these things suck they're terrible they're really really bad we don't want more of this and that's the thing that inspired me that this is a, a significant problem that if i can do anything about it i want to and i will so um so yeah i i do think that that is a a good approach to take to people who aren't necessarily um capable of being appealed to on other value systems yeah that's a sorted one though yeah if, if you're that far downstream ethically where that's the one thing that gets you yeah people who are desperate need your help and you don't want to have to help them later and it's cheaper to, Are, are you are you offended by, by that idea? Does it just rub well, me the wrong well, way? Well, it's like I would rather live in a world that doesn't have constant war and strife. That sounds really shitty. Desperate and, people. And that's that a better is way to frame it. Yeah. If we don't change okay. anything, it's a better way to frame it. Okay. 
<laughs> we got our rhetorical council here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, you know, when, when we're talking about change and people changing, we always need to drill down on motivations and motivations is, is a key part. And so you must think about this a lot at Avaz because that's, you know, constantly what you're thinking, like what is going to motivate these people to do X, right? And so how, how do you see it? What do you think some of the key drivers are in motivating people to change? I think in terms of motivating people in my work as a campaigner, and a lot of this I've learned at Avaz is essentially just communicating authentically. You know, we we try to source our own inspiration on a campaign, like really connect to the emotive core of it, and, and then try to write it and communicate in a way that really connects for us. And, and we see that that's most often it connects for other people. And, and it's true, right? When, you know, that's whatever are the most powerful nourishing relationships that we have in our lives are the ones where we feel really connected to people, right? So, um, and when you see things go viral on social media, like things that really like, you know, spread like wildfire, often those are moments of vulnerability, moments that people really speak truth, people really speak authentically. Those are the things that connect to people. And I think, I think that's how we uh, make change. That's how we communicate people to people about the urgency of different issues, uh, break down differences, and, and really uh, uh, break down the walls that have divided us for so long. Yeah. Have you, have you ever noticed that if you disagree with someone online, even if, even if you know this person in real life, you'll often just hate this person, but then you'll hang out and you'll be like, we could probably be friends. We could probably work through this. But there's something about that dimension of, of distance that makes it really hard for people to connect with. You know, you know what I do? 90% of the time is I, I'll see something like that and I'll start typing something out and then I'll stop. And I'll read it and then I'll erase it and close it because it's just not worth that effort. Yeah, it's it's just going to cause harm between the in the relationship it's like the abe lincoln said that about uh when you're mad i think you write a letter and and throw it away oh it's not even it's not even that it's like it's not necessarily cathartic for me it's that i realize like how pointless this is and this and is just going to make this person it, dislike me it's just the first of many comments that you would have to write to yeah, yeah. <laughs> also like oh god am i going to commit to two straight days of following this post yeah I very rarely get baited these days, but once in a while I will. And I often have just deleted it in the <laughs> in yeah. very awkward fashion. Sometimes there'll be a response to be like, no, nah, I just deleted it. There's just a hanging comment now. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> We've yeah. all been there. But yeah, I think what you're, what you're saying is that these stories are quite powerful. And even if people can sometimes feel quite heart of heart, they can be moved to tears or moved to connection by things like that. And I think reaching people in a story-driven way, especially because narrative is basically hardwired into our brains anyways, and we really like that. One of the reasons why science hasn't been as effective or like the science is settled rhetorical approach hasn't been as successful as maybe you'd like is because yeah. there isn't that story element to it or you're not seeing like that could just as easily be you. If you live in Florida, it just might be you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with that. Stories connect. Stories connect, yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> I like stories, yeah. Well, this this has been a lot of fun. I don't know if you want to leave our listeners with any final thoughts or words or sort of the things that give you hope. 
Yeah, I think as I said already, I think people give me hope. Uh, you know, we that we depressed you though. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think you guys are hosting this amazing podcast about climate change. Like, you know, those those are those are the choices we make to engage, right? Like we engage, everyone engages in a different way. Uh, and it's it's not going to be the same way for everyone, but ultimately it's about choosing those acts, right? It's not about um, calling out your friend and being like, oh, like you're you're not a vegan, hence you're a horrible person, right? Like that's that that doesn't work. And that's that just, you know, kind of makes uh relationships and and those connections toxic uh but everyone has different ways to engage but let's inspire each other to engage in ways that are the most meaningful and uh for us and and that we see are needed uh with respect to the 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 situation that we find ourselves in in this moment of urgency so whether that means for some people signing a petition for some people donating to an organization of your choice for some people becoming vegan for some people it might be marching on the streets um those are all individual choices and and i think it's just about the fundamental choice of engagement and and trying to move the ball forward absolutely and if you are listening to this podcast and you enjoy what we put out one choice you could make is go to republic.co/nori and invest in nori and learn all about everything you need to know on that website there Good job. You remembered uh, to do a plug. I did mine at the beginning. This is heavily self-advertised. Well, thanks for taking time to come meet with us. This is a lot of fun. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you.